We're so glad that you are checking out this sermon from New Beginnings. Our vision as a church is to become an authentic biblical community that transforms our city and impacts the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We do this through gathering in worship, growing through community, giving to the kingdom, and going on mission. We know that one of the greatest blessings of the church is getting to pursue this vision that God has given us together. My hope is that we would get the opportunity to connect with you in person and get you plugged into the life of our church. Also, if you have been blessed by the ministries of New Beginnings, we ask that you would consider supporting us financially. You can do so by clicking on the giving tab of our website, nvbctx.org. I pray that you are both encouraged and challenged by the scripture today. We are in week four of a series called uh, A Call to Die. And uh, let me just ask this question. Anybody been challenged by this series so far? Um, yeah, this has been a, a challenging series for me. I, I know that uh, just in, the, in my study and preparation and the months leading up to this and even now each week leading up to the sermons, uh, man, God has just wrecked my heart in a, in a great way. Um, removing things, challenging me in areas that, uh, um, that I know is needed and uh, rebuilding my heart in a, in a very, uh, very restorative uh, way. And I'm hoping that is your testimony uh, as well. As we've talked about the series, we, we've talked about the, the cost of discipleship, the cost of following Jesus, as we're kind of unpacking what Jesus meant when he said, hey, come follow me. And then we saw this call, this invitation to leave everything and to pursue Jesus. And then Last week, we saw the rest that is uh, available in Christ, that we, we come to Him, and in Him, we find rest for our uh, souls. And, and this morning, as we think about this, this, this is really a pivotal moment for us in this series, because what we're going to get to today is what I call the, ir the uh, irreducible minimum of discipleship. The irreducible minimum of discipleship. What do you mean, irreducible minimum? It just, that, that's a, that term literally means not reducible, incapable of being reduced or being, listen, diminished or simplified further. So when we think about all of the things that we are called to be and do as disciples of Jesus, what is fundamentally, when we simplify what it means to follow Christ, when we get down to just the heartbeat of discipleship, what is it? What is the irreducible minimum? What is it that summarizes all the commands of God and brings them down to a level where we go, okay, I get that? Well, that is where we're going to be this morning. So if you got your Bibles, grab them and go with me to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22, this is uh, uh, the fundamentals of following Jesus. This is what's most important according uh, to Jesus. So Matthew chapter 22 is a passage of Scripture many of you are familiar with. We know it as the great commandment. And uh, we're going to start reading in verse number uh, 34. If you're there, say, I'm there. This is what the scripture says. It says, but when the Pharisees heard that he had, this is Jesus, had silenced the Sadducees, uh, they gathered together. So uh, the Pharisees are, are, are there and they're witnessing Jesus. Literally, this is the last week of Jesus's life, his earthly ministry. He's making his way uh, through Jerusalem on his way to the cross. And and, and so the religious leaders are gathering around Jesus, and they're, they're having this, this uh, theological, philosophical, intellectual chess match with Jesus, where they're trying to trip him up and, and, and ask questions that might uh, catch him off guard, which is kind of dumb to really challenge uh, the author of the Word of God with the Word of God, right? And uh, it's not working for them. The Pharisees are witnessing this. He's tripping up the Sadducees, the other uh, religious group, and so... Uh, they decided that they would take their turn. 
I mean, Jesus is leveling the Sadducees. The Pharisees says, you know what? We're, we're going to take our turn at this. Look at verse 35. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. And so they're asking this question, hopefully, to get Jesus to say something that would be strong enough for them to have him either rejected by the crowds or at least give cause or reason to have him uh, put to death. So one of the lawyers asked a question, verse 36, Teacher, this is referring to Jesus, which is the greatest commandment in the law? What's the greatest commandment in the law? Now, we've got, we got to understand this question in its context. This is, when he says this, 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 asks this question, what is the greatest command? The word greatest there is a, a Greek word. It's, it's translated megas. It's where we get our English word mega. In other words, what is the mega commandment? What is the greatest commandment? What is the largest? What's the most important? What's the, the thing when all is stripped away? In other words, what is the irreducible minimum? What is the thing that's most important to God in regards to His commandments? Now, when we think of this, oftentimes we automatically go, okay, the Ten Commandments, which of the Ten Commandments is the greatest commandment? But in this particular day and time, there would have been 613 commands that these religious leaders were trying to live up to on a regular basis. We have 248 commands were what we call positive precepts or positive commands. These were the do's of the day. Like, we want to do this and do this and do this. There were 248 of them. They believed one for every part of the human body. And then there were 365 negative commands. These were the don'ts of the day. So there was one for every day of the week. And so for these religious leaders and for the people of the day, there were 613 commands. Think about it. We struggle with 10. And so 613, like every day they're going, i got to do these things, and I've got to not do these things, and did I do these properly, did I not do these properly, and this is just consuming their entire day. So he asked this question, of all the 613 things that we're trying to do every single day, what's mega? What's the most important? What's the greatest? Notice Jesus' answer. Look what he says here. Jesus answered him and says, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind. Listen to this. This is the greatest and first commandment. He says this is the mega commandment. And then he says this is the first, the mega and first. The word first there is the, the word protos. It's where we get our English word priority. And so Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind. This is the mega commandment, and it's the priority commandment. It's the one that's, that trumps all of them. But then he says in verse 39, in the second it's like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So in, in this statement, Jesus answers and says, this is the irreducible minimum. This is at the end of the day, when you think about it, what does Jesus want to produce in his followers more than anything else? What is it that is at the heart of following Jesus? Jesus gives us this answer. There are two commands, he says, are the way that we uh, are to live in, in light of his call to follow him. And I'll just kind of give you these. I'm going to put it in a phrase that help us understand the, the magnitude of what Jesus is saying. Here's number one is this. Here's the first command Jesus says. Here's the irreducible minimum. Number one is love God completely. We are to love God completely. Look what he says here. And he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with how much of your heart? With, with all of your heart. With what? All of your what? Your soul. And then all of your what? Mind. So the key is with all of my soul, with all of my heart, with all of my mind. So, so in other words, what Jesus is saying is the essence of discipleship is a love for God. Now, I know what's happening in this room right now. Some of you are like, all right, I do that. I love God. 
Like, I, I love God. How many of you would say amen to you love God? So we would not, I don't think, there's very few people in the room that would go, you know what, nah, I'll just take, I take him or leave him. I really don't have any, anything for him, right? And if you did feel that way, you probably wouldn't say it, right? Like all of us in this room would say, I love God. Okay, so I do that. So, but here's the thing. We, we have turned love into what I call a, a junk drawer word in our culture and society. You know what I'm talking about? How many of y'all have a junk drawer at your house? Raise your hand. Everybody has a junk drawer. What's in your drawer? Junk. And so another way of saying it, everything. And it's really not junk because if it was junk, you'd go in the trash can. It's, it's all the things that you're like, I don't know if it has a place. I don't even know if it has a use. I don't even know if I'll ever need it. But if I do... I'm going to go through the four hours of frustration of digging through all of it to find that thing that I thought I needed. And so we have, you know, in our kitchens or whatever, we have a drawer for our spoons and knives and forks for maybe hand towels. And then we have the junk drawer. And everything that doesn't belong anywhere else goes in there. Love has become a junk drawer word in our culture and society. So like, for instance, if I was to say to you, finish the, the, the phrase, I love blank. What, what would you say? I love I love, some of y'all said, God, you're, you're like Sunday school answers in this place. Like, so you would probably say a lot of things you could say. I love pizza. I love tacos. I love football. I love spring weather that I wish was here, or fall weather I wish was here, right? I, I love, so you can go through the list, and then you would say stuff like, well, I also love my kids, and I love my, you know, right? So we would go through this list, and you would use the same word, and you would describe all of these things that you love. But hopefully there are different levels of which that would apply, right? So let me just kind of use myself as an illustration. I love tacos. Like I, like, I love tacos. It's the greatest food that God ever gave the, the planet. I mean, I just, it's, tacos is amazing. And it's just an explosion of flavors, and they're done right. Now, there are some tacos that are not so great, but for the most part, tacos are tacos, and they're great. So I love tacos, but I also love playing basketball. Like, I love playing basketball. In fact, I would say to you, I love playing basketball more than I love tacos. And so today, if you were to say, Pastor, why don't you come to our house? We're going to fix tacos. I'd be like, yes, I'm in. Then an hour later, if I got a call from some friends that said, hey, we're playing basketball later, I'd be like, I'm taking the rain check on the tacos because I'm going to go play basketball with my friends. And so here's what you would discover. My love for basketball is greater than my love for tacos. Why? Because my priorities are going to say this comes first. So I would use the same word to describe both of them. But the priorities and the order in which I put them will show that there's a greater love for one over the other. Would you, right? So I love tacos. I love basketball. I love my children. And so if I get an invitation to go um, to eat tacos at somebody's house, I'm like, yes, I'm in. Until someone calls me and says, hey, can you come play basketball? I'm like, yeah. And then they call and say, hey, your kids have an activity. And I'm going to be like, I'm playing basketball. I can't make it. Uh, I, <laughs> no, I, I'm teasing. I wouldn't do that. I, I would drop everything and I would go hang with my kids. Why? Because I love my kids, but I love them more, right? So we, we have to acknowledge that while we say love is applied to a lot of things, the depth of the love that we have for the thing is really indicated not by the word we use to describe the way we feel about it, but rather the place that it has in our life. Are you with me? So when you say, I love God, Many of you, that would be true. He is a, he, you have affection toward him. You, you love God like I love tacos or basketball or even my kids. He's got a place in your life. But that's not what Jesus is saying here. Jesus says, you love me with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with how much of your mind? With 
all of it. So what Jesus is saying here, that, that the love that he wants to be built into our life as followers of his is to become men and women who have an all-encompassing love for him where he becomes the centerpiece of all of who we are. That, that our love for him is greater than our love for anything else in life. That's why he says with all of our heart, with all of our mind, with all of our soul. And we can like, we could go through, like a lot of people do, and this is not wrong to do, but we could go through and say, let's talk about your heart now, and let's see what that looks like, and let's talk about your soul, and then let's talk about your mind. And, and I've preached sermons like that, and, and I don't think they're wrong to do, but I don't think that's the point. I don't think when Jesus says this, he's thinking, and now I need you to go, and I need you to, to, to dissect the trichotomy of, of the essence of humanity and think about the heart and what that is and the soul and what that is and the mind and what that is. No, no, no. I think what Jesus is saying is that with all of who you are, with every fiber of your existence, with every corner of your life, there, that there is nothing that makes you who you are that is not placing a love for God where he trumps everything else in your life. It's not about dissecting the human existence. It's about yielding the entirety of who we are to being in love with Him. That He would get all of our worship. That there, there would be a, a, a pursuit of Him where He becomes our entirety of our life, where, where our, our desire and our passion for Him was greater than our passions for anything else in this world. And we're going to see in the next couple of weeks, this is why Jesus says, look, if whoever you know, says they, they're going to be a follower of mine and don't, does not hate their mother and father and their brother and sister is not worthy of following me, we look at that and we go, wait, following Jesus means I have to hate? What Jesus is saying is, we're going to discover is that your love for me has to be so great that in comparison to your love for anything else, that other thing that you love looks like hate compared to your love for me. That this is the greatest in the first commandment, that this is what he wants to produce in our life, that we would become men and women whose lives are defined by an undivided worship, by an unyielding pursuit of him, an unwavering passion to be with him, and, and that we would serve him out of an overflow of that love so that that love would transcend not just to, for our feelings where we feel for him, but actually cause us to live differently. So for instance, I told you a second ago, I love my kids. I, I love my kids. And like, because I love my kids, like, I want to be near them. I want to be with them. I want to do things. Like One of the things that's happening in our family right now is my, my oldest daughter is playing soccer. She's playing soccer. Now, here's the thing. We, we're not a soccer family. Didn't grow up playing soccer. I know there's a lot of soccer players maybe in this room. She's becoming a very good soccer player. So uh, here's the thing. Like, I am not like the other day I had to have sit beside some people who had to explain to me the offsides rule of soccer, which I think is the dumbest rule invented in any sport. All right. If you know soccer, you know what I'm talking about. It'd be like taking away the fast break out of basketball. I'm like, I don't see the point of this. And so I'm sitting there in a sport I know nothing about. And by the way, it's like 197 degrees at five o'clock in the afternoon. And I'm sitting here, and I'm, I feel like I'm like, this is what hell's going to be like, I think. <laughs> like, this is hot. And I'm watching these kids run around, kick a ball. I know nothing about this sport. I know nothing about the rules. I'm trying to learn. And listen, I'm not sitting there going, gosh, this stinks. But I'm a good dad, so I'm going to be here. 
And I'm going to, why are you here? Because my daughter's playing, and if I'm going to be a good father, I've got to be here. And so I'm here out of duty because I have to be, and because she expects me to be here. No, 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 no. You know what I was doing? In 197-degree weather, in a sport that I have no clue, I'm cheering, I'm clapping, and I'm yelling because that girl with that number and that jersey, that's my girl, and I love her, and I'm losing my mind because, listen, I love her, and that love that I have for her compels me. To say, I want to be here. I'm not going to tell her I'm there because I have to be if I'm going to be a good father. I'm there because, man, there's no place I'd rather be than like baking in the sun cheering you on. (laughs) God is not impressed with our dutiful obedience. He doesn't want us to be like, like, of course I'm going to church. That's what I do. I'd rather be playing golf or fishing. Of course I'm going to do these things. God wants me to do these things. I've got to do these things. That's not what he's after. What he wants is hearts that yearn for him, that long for him to say the greatest delight is to please the one that I love, to serve my king because I love my king. And yes, he's calling me to things that are hard. Yes, they're difficult. Yes, there are days where it is exhausting and tired, but because I love him, I'm I'm running after those things. He doesn't want our dutiful obedience. He wants a heart that's yielded to him where he becomes the all-encompassing love of our life. So Jesus makes this statement. He says, this is the irreducible minimum. It's to love God completely, which leads me to number two. Number two is love others genuinely. Love others genuinely. Look what he says in verse 39. He says, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now listen to what Jesus says. He says, and the second is like this. The second is like the first. What is the first? Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all your mind. So love is the centerpiece of this, and so the second is like the first, but it's to love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, here's what Jesus is saying. When he says the, the second is like the first, the two are inseparable. Now, the first is the first, but if you have the first, you're going to have the second. And if you, you don't have the second, guess what you don't have also? You don't have the first. This is the point Jesus is making. That these two are inseparable. To love me with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind is to love those who are made in my image. So how can we? So people all say all the same time things. I can't even speak the English language today. People say things all the time like this. Like like pastors will say, man, I love pastoring if it wasn't for the people. Like, how does that work? Like, that, that, that is the work. That's the people is the job. You're going to say, well, I love God, but people, man, they just drive me crazy. They just annoy me. Like, I, I don't, I mean, I have, yes, I have these people that I hate and that I'm bitter at, and I don't, I won't extend forgiveness, but man, but I love God. So how can we say that we love God if we don't love people that we're in proximity to who bear His image? Here's what John would say in 1 John chapter 4, verse 20. He says, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. How blunt is that? <laughs> Y'all thought I was blunt. And like, you find someone who says they love God, but they hate their brother, that's a liar. It's a liar. Later on, he says, and the truth is not even in them. In other words, they, not only are they a liar, they, they, they don't even know the truth. But this is what he says here. He says, he, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. How can you say you love God if you've not seen God, yet you, you, you hate your brother who you do see? 
How, how can you say you love God but hate the people who bear His image? So loving the Lord your God with all of your heart is going to lead you to loving your neighbor as yourself. Now listen, we've got to be careful because we live in a self-help, you know, self-therapy type um, culture where here's what we do. We say love your neighbor as yourself and like in, in most churches they're going to jump in and go, okay, now let's talk about self-love. You've got to love your neighbor as yourself. You'll never love your neighbor unless you love yourself. So let's talk about 14 ways you can love yourself. No, no, no. Jesus' point is not love yourself. Jesus is assuming you already do that really well. Right? The problem with the human nature is not that we don't love ourselves. It's the problem is we only love ourselves. You may say, well, I've got a low self-esteem. Let me tell you why you've got a low self-esteem. It's because all you do is think about yourself. You are supreme in your affection, so all of your attention goes to you. And so whether it's pride where you, all you do is brag about who you are, or whether it's self-deprivation, guess who is the centerpiece of all of your thoughts on both sides of the scale? You. The point he's making is not hey, love yourself. No, no, the point is, is you've got to love others with the same love that you have for yourself. What do you do when you're hungry? You get something to eat. What do you do when you're thirsty? You find something to drink. What do you do when you're tired? You, you get rest. What do you do when you're sick? You go to the doctor. So in the same way that you care for yourself, you ought to care for others. So when someone's in need, you care for their need. When someone is hurting, you care for their hurt. You, you love others like you love yourself. This is the point. But the same love that we would give ourselves, the same love that we would want someone else to give us, that's the love that we freely give away. To love God with everything and then love genuinely those who are around us. And this is the, the reality that, that, that we as followers of Jesus are to be defined by the way we love the world around us. We are in a brand culture, right? Like everything has a brand. Coffee has brands. Clothing has brands. If you look at like the football uh, yesterday, different teams, some had Under Armour, some had Nike, some had Jumpman, some had Adidas. And you get all these brands. And whenever you see that little logo, you're like, man, I know who they're with. That's their people, right? Well, listen to me, believer. The brand of followers of Jesus is love. That this is what should define us as God's people, that we would love God with everything and then love our neighbor as ourselves. This is our brand. This is when people see the love that we are expressing and walking through, they should say, man, that's a follower of Jesus. They're wearing the brand. This is what Jesus would say about this in John chapter 13, verse 34. He says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples because you abstain from certain drinks and you don't say certain words and because you go to church at least three times out of the month. Is that what he says here? By this all men will know that you're my disciples because you're the morality police in your office and you're just kind of letting everybody know when they drop the ball and fail. Is that how they know? Don't say no, pastor. All right? Here's what he says. By this all men will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. It's having love for one another. This is the defining marker of a disciple. And by the way, this is not just those who love you, because that would be pretty easy, right? Like, they love me, I love them, it's a great, perfect world. But followers of Jesus, our love goes deeper than just proximity and mutual care. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 43. This is the true marks of a follower of Jesus. He says, he says you've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Like, this is the rules we play by. Like, I love them, they love me, but that guy over there, that girl over there, they get on my nerves, and I don't want to be around them, and I just want to keep my distance. And Jesus says that, you've heard it said, you should love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. They say, what? 
right? Like, really? So that you may be the sons of your Father who's in heaven. In other words, so that you can look like your daddy. You can look like your father when you love your enemies, when you pray for those who persecute you. And here's why. For he makes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust, just not in East Texas, apparently. Verse 46, for, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do it, not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Here's what he's saying. He's like, hey, you, you love those who love you? That's awesome. So does the IRS. You, you love those who, who love you? That's great. So, so do the pagans and the, those who worship other false religions. They love the people that love them. How are you any different? No, the distinction between followers of Jesus and the rest of the world is that we love our neighbor as ourselves, and we don't put conditions on who that neighbor is, that whether they're our friends or our enemies, whether they love us or hate us, mistreat us or treat us, it does not matter. We say we love them. They're made in the image of God. Therefore, we pray for them. We care for them. We meet their needs. We love with a perfect love because our heavenly Father is perfect. This is the call of discipleship, to love God with everything, to love him completely, and to love others genuinely. This is one of the reasons that we're going to go into the city in a few weeks to an event called Be the Church. We're going to leave this campus on October 6th, and we're going to serve in, in dozens and dozens of ministry projects meeting people's need in our community. And here's why we're doing this, church. Listen, every single follower of Jesus in this room needs to be a part of Be the Church, and here's why. It's what we are going to do that day is we are going to declare to our community, listen, that this thing called following Jesus isn't about just coming to a building and hearing sermons and singing songs and then going about our week. No, this thing called following Jesus is about a, a, a heart of love that is being cultivated that recognizes that there is brokenness and there are needs and there are hurting people and there is suffering and there's lostness and we are here for you and we care for you. Therefore, we're going to leave this campus and we're going to go and we're going to meet the needs of people as a declaration that the love Love of Jesus is not some emotional, warm, fuzzy concept, but rather it's something that transforms who we are and how we live and how we respond to the world around us. So this is a declaration that we are saying to the community, listen, New Beginnings Baptist Church, we are here for you because Jesus loves you and because Jesus loves you, we love you and we're going to show you we love you by serving you and being the hands and feet of Jesus in your life. Listen, but it's also not just a declaration to our city. It's a reminder to us. It's a reminder for us. Listen, one of the reasons, we could pick Friday, Saturday, midweek, we could pick any other day of the week other than Sunday. The reason we are strategically choosing Sunday is because I want that day to be a reminder for all of us in this room that it is not about this room. This is nothing more than a salt shaker. And salt in a shaker does no one any good. It's not until the salt leaves the shaker before it can make an impact and fulfill its purpose. And so on that Sunday, we're going to shake the salt out into the community as a reminder that this is what life should look like for us all the time. That we would serve the world around us. Now look what Jesus says here in verse 40. I think it's important. Notice what Jesus says in verse 40. Uh, 40, how he summarizes these verses. He says, on these two commandments, what commandments? Love God completely, 
love others genuinely, on these two commandments depend all of the law and the prophets. All of the law. In other words, everything that God has revealed in the Old Covenant is summarized in these two commands. Love God completely and love others genuinely. In other words, just Jesus is saying, this is the irreducible minimum. This is the essence of what it means to follow me. This is what I've come to create in your life. Now, now notice what Jesus says. He, he doesn't say, listen, that, that this means that, that we erase the commands of Scripture. Loving God and, and loving others erases the commands of Scripture. No, no, no. Here's what Jesus means. But rather, he's saying this is the most simplistic way by which we fulfill the other commands of Scripture. So here, here's what I want to explain to you just for a moment. The new covenant that Jesus has ushered in has been ushered in to bring about a transformation of the heart of humanity. The old covenant was all about the external law. So we had the law written, and so the law God gave really had two big primary purposes. The first purpose was to reveal the fact that we're broken these are my expectations. This is what righteousness looks like. This is what it means to truly know me and love me and pursue me. But guess what? The human heart is broken. We're bent towards sin. How do we know we're bent towards sin? How do we know we're crooked? Because the law was the measuring rod. It was the righteous standard by which we had to see ourselves. And so we see ourselves with the law and we're bent towards sin. No matter how hard we try, we can't straighten ourselves out. And so it reminds us that, listen, we, we are broken and we are in need of redemption. We are in need of restoration. And so the law was given for that purpose. Here's the great news in Jesus. Jesus came, and what did Jesus do? Jesus fulfilled the law perfectly for us. He measured up. Every command of God that was demanded of us, Jesus perfectly fulfilled. He is the perfect righteousness of God who lived on this planet. And ultimately, he goes and dies on our behalf, absorbing our brokenness, receiving our punishment because he is perfect. He could receive that for us. He resurrects. And then he says this, if you'll place your faith and trust in me, you'll enter into a new covenant. And that new covenant is not really defined by you trying to straighten yourself out, but rather in me, the fulfillment of the law has been met and therefore the righteousness you need is now found in me and so you have a relationship with God not on the basis of your ability to obey the commandments but rather resting in the fact that I have obeyed them for you anybody grateful for that that this is the reality of what Jesus has done for us that he has fulfilled the law that there's a new covenant that's not based upon our performance but what, on, what Jesus has done for us now the other reason the law was given is because God is good and he is gracious. And in the law, God reveals the way he designed life to be. But because of our hardness of heart, because of our brokenness, because of our inability, because uh, of our sin nature, we, we want to rebel against that. There's the scriptures in the Old Testament, we think of the law oftentimes as, man, this, the law is tough, and we, the, the, the law is bad. The law is not bad. The commands of God are not bad. In fact, David would say, man, they're, they're like honey from the honeycomb. The laws of the Lord are good. It, 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 it's the light that leads us to the way in which he wants us to live. So here's what happens in the New Covenant is that we are now able to delight in doing the commands of God because in Christ we've been given a new heart. You say, where did you get that? Let me show you what 
Ezekiel, the prophet, says about this new covenant that Jesus entered into place for us. Ezekiel 36, verse 26, listen to this. And I will give you, this is talking about Jesus ushering in the new, new covenant. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You follow what's happening here? He says, I'm gonna, there's going to be a heart transplant. Your cold, dead heart that was bent towards sin, I'm going to remove it and I'm going to replace it with a heart of flesh, a heart that beats for me, a heart that's alive, a heart that desires, a heart that loves me. So there's going to be this old removal of heart. There's a new heart that's given to you. And then that new heart is going to be filled with my spirit. And now I'm going to give you not just a, a, a command to follow, but rather a desire in you to obey the commands that I give you. I will cause you to delight, to walk in, to be careful. In other words, to, to yearn for obedience now. This is the essence of the new covenant. This is why Jesus says this is how the law is fulfilled. When we enter into the new covenant, our hearts are awakened to a love for God and a love for others that causes us now, because I am in Christ, I don't want to have any other gods before him. Why? Because I don't need another. I've got the best God a guy could have. I've got the best God you could imagine. He gave his son to die for me. I wouldn't want to put anyone before him. Why would I go to a graven image? I don't have to worship an idol. I can go directly and worship him. Why would I want to steal from my neighbor? Because I love my neighbor now. Why would I want to kill someone? I don't, I don't need a law to tell me not to kill someone. Why? Because I love my neighbor. Now it's overflow of love. Now I want to honor the Lord because I love him. Now I want to care for and love neighbors because he's given me a brand new heart. So, so listen, like I, the illustration I use in this is that my wife and I, like uh, we've been married almost 19 years in March. So, so in, in March, it'll be 19 years. And uh, I was talking with a, a young couple who we were getting married the other day and I just said, man, after 19 years of marriage, I'll just be honest with you, I love my wife more today than I did the first day. Like, I loved, I mean, she was in the first service. She's not in this service, so I'm not trying to get brownie points. So, like, I love that woman, like, I, with everything. I, I mean, I'm so, like, if she decided to leave me, I'm going with her. I promise you. <laughs> but I love her more today than I did the first day. And I can, I can honestly say that. I love her more today than I've ever loved her in my life. You know why? Because I know her more today than I did the first day. And in our marriage over 19 years, as I've learned to love her and as I've, I've, I've grown to love her and as my love has increased for her, there are things that I do today in my home for my wife that, like, they're not in my natural disposition to do. Like, little things, like picking up clothes in the floor of the bathroom. Ladies, right? Amen? <laughs> or cleaning the kitchen, like, after dinner. Like, staying in the kitchen and cleaning like all of my impulses of like, I'm full, I'm going to sit, but, but I, I find myself in the kitchen clean. Why do I do that? Because I love my wife, and I, after years I've learned this is what makes her happy. This is what says I love you to her. And so that, that in my own nature, like if it was just me in singlehood, there'd be piles of dishes everywhere, and it'd be terrible in my house. But, but I go to the kitchen just instinctively and help her pick up, not i got to do this because she, she, she's never going to be satisfied if I don't. No, no, no. I find myself in there cleaning and working and talking. Why? Because this says I love you to her. 
So there are things now that are part of the rhythms of my life that, that now come natural, and I want to do these things because I know that they say I love you to her, and because I truly do love her, they become second nature. Are you with me? So when it comes to our love for God, as it grows, our obedience grows. We desire to do things that, that please Him. So let's be honest, all right? It's not easy. Anybody say amen to this, not easy? Loving God completely, lo- loving others genuinely. I- I'll just be- confess to you, like this week, I was, uh, there's, a, there's a certain coffee shop in town, I'm not going to tell you where, it's my hideout. And um, it's a coffee shop where most people that go to this coffee shop, they go through the drive-thru, they don't go inside, and so I discovered this. And uh, every once in a while, people will try to discover my, my, my hideout. A couple of staff members have done that, and I've shamed them into not coming back. And... Um, in fact, a couple of days ago, I was there, and one of, them, one of the ladies that worked there said, I haven't seen your friend in a while. And I was like, yeah, and you won't, you won't see him uh, here again. And uh, I said, he's, he's got permission to do the drive-thru, but he can't be in here during the week. So, uh, I, I, so typically, I go there, and I'll hide out, and I'll write sermons. And, and Wednesday and Thursday, I spend a lot of time there. Time there. And um, so this week, I was there, and I'm, I'm getting ready. I get all the things set up, and I'm, and I'm grinding. I'm, I'm getting after it until this, this lady comes in. To my hideout, like the audacity. She comes in, and not only does she come, she brings a friend with her, and then she brings a dog in there. And listen, I'm not an anti-dog guy. I love, I love animals, love dogs, but like she, I'm, I'm working. She brings a dog in, and by the way, like I said, if you're a dog person, love God for you, but wash your dog every now and then, please, for, for the love of Jesus, right? Like, like, seriously, bathing your dog is not a bad thing. It's not torture. It's a good thing for them. Hygiene is great for all of us. So she brings him in. Immediately, the aroma of coffee is gone. Now it's like wet dog coffee. I don't know what that blend is. And, he's, and she lets him roam around. He's sniffing and licking my leg. And I'm like, lady, you have no clue. I'm about to blow it right now. And I, she goes like, well, he just has to explore. I'm like, he's about to get punted is what he's about to get. And... And I just feel this rage. And then she sits in the booth and loads the dog. And now the aroma of wet dog coffee blend is there filling my space. And I'm telling you, I was infuriated as I was writing a sermon about loving your neighbor as yourself. You talk about the epitome of hypocrisy. And I'm I'm literally, I'm like, I just want to write this sermon. But no. So I just packed my bags up and I left. A lady who, I mean, they all know I'm in there, and they're like, why are you done so early? And I'm like, nope. <laughs> I'm just out. And uh, I, 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 normally I get in the truck, I'm like, oh, you shouldn't have done that. I just got in the truck, I'm like, you've done that. And <laughs> then I started laughing because I'm like, you're writing a sermon about loving your neighbor as yourself. You've got to tell the church that. So uh, that's, confession is good for the soul. This is not easy. So I'm going to give you two things that I think will help you. So listen, loving the Lord your God with all your heart, loving him completely and loving others genuinely. While we have a new heart and there's a a process of of this taking place in our life, right? I thank the Lord for sanctification because I didn't arrive on day one. But the scripture says that he who began a good work in me will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. So the world and, and things in my life compete for my affection War for my time, war for my, war for my heart. Selfishness that rises up in me causes me to not want to love my neighbor as myself. So anybody confess that, man, this, this, this thing, loving God and loving people, is, it may be simple, but it's not easy. 
So let me give you two things that I help that I think will help us cultivate a heart of love toward God and toward others. The first is this. Write this down if you're taking notes. Listen, we, we cultivate love by resting in the gospel. We cultivate love by resting in the gospel. And I know for some of you in this room, you're like, okay, pastor, you, you, okay, that's, that's like too easy. I know the gospel. I've, I've embraced Jesus. He's my Savior. Okay, that's not helping. But I'm not talking about you accepting Jesus as your Savior, although that needs to be the beginning of the relationship. But I'm talking about you learning as a follower of Jesus how to rest in the gospel. Because here's what I've learned about my life over the last 20-something years of following Jesus. When I'm resting in the gospel, man, my love for God is growing. My love for Jesus is on fire. When I'm not resting in the gospel, my love for him grows cold and my love for others grows cold. So let me show you a verse of Scripture that helps me with this. Look what 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. Listen to what John writes. He says, in this is love. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he, have loved, he has loved us. So, in other words, and this is love. So, so if, the, if, the, if the irreducible minimum is love God completely, John would say, and, and in this book he's calling us to love God, but he says, and this is love, not that you love God. Listen, you loving God completely is not about you starting with your love toward God. And this is love, not that you love God, but that God has loved you. It always starts from God coming to us, not us coming to God. And this is love. Not that you're just going to try to love God and hopefully he reciprocates that love. No, no, no. He initiates, we respond. And then he says this. Not only does he love us, and this is love, not that we love God, but he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. So a lot of people, when we see this word propitiation, especially in like the seeker-friendly churches, they'll go, we need to skip over theological words like this, but then we lose the foundation of the gospel. He says, and this is love, not that you love God, but that God loved you. How? He sent his son to be the propitiation for your sins. What does that mean? The word propitiation just literally simply means this. One who absorbs the wrath and the punishment on our behalf. Here is what John is saying. This is love. Not you loving God, hoping that somewhere along the way you love him enough to be forgiven, to be reconciled, to be redeemed. No, no, this is love. That while you were an enemy of God, when God's wrath was burning against you because of your sin, in your sinful condition, God initiated a love relationship with you by sending his son to absorb the judgment of your sin that you rightfully deserved establishing a new relationship with God where the hostility between you and God has been removed, not by your loving God, but rather by Jesus' finished work on the cross loving you. I'm going to tell you, when I rest in that, it stirs my affection for God. It causes me to want to walk in obedience to Him to recognize that, listen, God loves me on my best day as much as he loves me on my worst day, that he found me in my darkest places. He knows the worst of me and says, hey, hey, I still love you, and I initiated love, and Jesus absorbed that thing that you feel guilty about, ashamed about, that failure that you feel like defines you. No, 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 no. Jesus has removed it because I've loved you, and now in response to that, I can go, and I love you back. And I desire to follow you because I love you. I want to walk in your commands because you've given me this love. It explodes my heart with gratitude and love back to God. But, but in the days where I think it's my effort, 
and my ability and my performance, man, that's a beating because that's a burden I don't have the ability to carry. I either become puffed up when I nail it or I become crushed when I don't. It's like my kids, my, my, my kids love their dad's approval. They love when I go to the ball games and I cheer them on. But, but here's one thing that I, I, I love about the relationship that I have with my kids. My kids yearn for dad's approval because they know they already have dad's approval. See, if my kids only felt like I loved them when they performed well, when they, when they, when I, they did it right, and I'm like, okay, you nailed it. You get it. You got it. Now you got my love. If I love my kids, if that's the relationship, eventually they will despise the one that they crave the approval of. Eventually there'll be a bitterness toward me by saying, I can never do enough. He was never satisfied. He never allowed us to, to, to feel just embraced with who we are. He just always put these things we never could measure up. And we would do that and there would be something else. If that's the relationship, bitterness is going to replace affection. But when they know they are loved unconditionally, they don't want the applause less. less. But now there's a new motivation. Now they want to please dad because they know that they're loved completely by him. Listen, I, I want to please my heavenly father. Not for approval, but from approval. Not for love, but from love. This changes everything. And then he goes on to say this, love, love our neighbor as ourselves. Look what he says. He says in verse uh, 11, he says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. In other words, if this is the love that God has given you, how could you not give it to someone else? So when I'm resting in the gospel, here's what I'm remembering. Man, God loved me when I was an enemy. God loved me when I deserved his judgment. God loved me when I was broken before I got it all together. And he sent Christ to act on my behalf to do for me what I did not deserve. And then John says, and if that's how God loved you, that's how you love others. So how could I hold bitterness in my heart? If I've been loved like this. So when I rest in the gospel, it gives me, listen, the framework by which I love the world around me. The further you stray from the gospel and into self-righteousness, the less loving of a person you will be to those around you. But the more you rest in the righteousness that's found in Jesus and Jesus alone, the more you become dependent upon what you have freely received from him that you didn't deserve, the more you will freely give to others the love that you've received. Rest in the gospel. Here's number two. This is the one that's most personal for me. We cultivate love by resting in the gospel. We cultivate love by creating rhythms in life. By creating rhythms in life. Listen, most marriages fail not because the couple wakes up one day and goes, I don't love you anymore. Most marriages fail because they have developed unhealthy rhythms in life that over a season, over a period, over a decade, they drifted away from one another. Are you with me? Our relationship with God, listen, is to be cultivated. There should be rhythms that we put into place in our life that cultivate a love for God that are things that spur us on toward loving Him and loving others. We need to be intentional. Just like a healthy marriage has to be intentional, if we're going to be in a healthy relationship with God, there, there needs to be intentionality, rhythms. Jesus lived with rhythms. He withdrew regularly to get alone with God to pray. He went there as was His custom to pray, right? 
Jesus fasted. Jesus Sabbathed. Jesus worshiped. Jesus met at parties and hung out with friends and laughed. You with me? This is the rhythms of life that Jesus lived with. We need to find rhythms in life. So let me give you some rhythms. And listen, what that rhythm looks like for you and the schedule that you keep may be different based upon seasons of life, work, all of those things that you may have going on, but the staples should be there. Let me give you a couple of rhythms that should be a part of your life that cultivate your love for God and others. Uh, Regular time in God's Word and prayer. Regular time in God's Word and in prayer. Listen, I love my wife more today after 19 years because I've spent a lot of time with her. And the more I know her, the more I love her. You can't, you can't grow in a relationship with someone without knowing them. The more I, I spend time in God's word, the more I spend time in consistent prayer, the, 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 the more that becomes a rhythm of my life, that my day is going to start with time alone with God. And what does that mean? I'm going to get up a little earlier because I value more than the extra 25 minutes of sleep. God, he's the great love of my life. So I'm going to love him more than sleep and I'm going to get up. Are you with me? Another rhythm is faithfulness and worship. We were never meant to do the Christian life alone. So we come to worship regularly. We're connected to a local body of believer. It becomes a rhythm of our life. Therefore, uh, other than uh, irregular circumstances, this rhythm is going to be unbroken. Meeting together so we can sit under God's word together. Singing, lifting our voices together. Coming together as the people of God. Worshiping God. This, I'm telling you, for me, I come in this place not as your pastor. I come in as a fellow disciple and a worshiper. And listen, my affections for Jesus are stirred every single week when I gather in this place with you. You're like, I don't know why I'm not love God more. And if you look at the rhythm of your life, faithfulness to God's house is, 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 is very low on the priority list. Uh, connected to life group, living in closer proximity. You want to love your neighbor as yourself? Start living in regular proximity to other people. Learning their failures, them learning your failures, being iron sharpening iron. Your, your love for Jesus and your love for people is going to grow. You say, wait a second, when I got into life group, relationships got more difficult and people were just hard to deal with. Yes, that's a part of the sanctifi- sanctifying work of Jesus in your life, causing you to love people like Jesus. Anyone can love at a surface level. But when you enter into life with someone, that's when you grow in your love for people being connected to life group. Here's another one, serving others. Getting outside of yourself and just serving the needs of others. This is why I love being a part of life group because our life groups serve. This gets me out of, I'm like in the Christian bubble every day. And so I love getting out in the community and serving with my life group and interacting with people because it allows me to feel near to the brokenness of our community, which stirs my affection both for God and for the world around me. So serving others. Here's another one, fasting. Some of you are like, I ain't writing that one down. You're like, I'm fasting from fasting, right? So, so fasting, abstaining from certain habits or rhythms in your life so that you can give more intentional focus on the Lord. Primarily food. Sabbath. Taking a day during the week. However your rhythm fits in where you can just rest and, and remember it's not about you. It's not on you. This is why in the creation narrative, he's in the seventh day, they what? They rested. Why? God's saying, I, I, want my, I want my people to know from the very beginning, the world is not revolving because you're working. This world is not operating because you are some master craftsman that allows all this thing to happen. No, no, no. I want you to have a day where you don't do anything. So you can remember on that day, 
I'm the one keeping this thing rolling. You with me? Sabbath. Time with friends. Creating rhythms where there's just like, not, I'm not talking about going to ball games and having dinner afterwards. I mean just time where you can sit for a couple of hours and laugh and eat and fellowship and just enjoy people. Can I just tell you there are times where I'll leave with friends and I'm an introvert by nature. Sundays are tough for me. Because I, I, would, I would rather be in a room with two or three close friends having genuine conversation and laughing than I would be in a, in a huge crowd of people. So there are times where I'll leave from hanging out with friends and I just leave full. Like I, I, just, I'm, I mean, I'm thinking, God, you are so good. It cultivates a heart of worship and a heart of love. So I, I was right here just for a minute. Here's my confession to you. Irreducible minimum. Love God completely. Love others genuinely. This is an area that I, grew, I, I, I need to grow in. Two years ago on sabbatical, two years ago on sabbatical, I was at a really dry place in life. Some of you have heard this. And I was reading a book called Replenish. And in the very first chapter, there was a statement. And here was that statement. This is the author. He's been in church ministry for a long time. Here's what he said. He says, when I get to the finish line, I want to still be in love with Jesus. I want to still love his church. I want to still love being a pastor. With my head held high, with my dignity and honor still intact, I want to look back over my shoulder and say it was worth it. And I read that phrase and it broke me. Because one of the things that the Lord showed me in that moment, that the dryness that I had in my heart was because of this reality. After all those years of pastoring, of all the years of ministry leading up to that moment, I could definitively tell you I'm a better leader. And I can get things done. I'm a better shepherd. I know how to care for people. Like I, 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 as far as the threshold of, of what I can handle as just a worker, like I, I'm, I'm stronger than I've ever been in my life. But I didn't love Jesus more. In fact, here's the confession of my heart on that back porch two years ago. I actually discovered I loved Jesus less than I did at first. And I didn't love his bride like I once loved his bride. And I'm telling you, I mean, it broke me. And I, one of the questions he poses in the book is, what kind of an old man do you want to be? Do you want to be a crusty, dried-up guy who can look back and point to all the accolades, all the things you accomplished for the kingdom? Or do you want to be an old man that still weeps over the gospel? Who's more in love with Jesus on his last days than he was his first? who still loves the bride and counts it an honor that I get to serve her with my life. And I had to confess to the Lord, I, I don't love you like I did. I don't love your bride like, and I, the trajectory I wrote down in a journal, that I will be a statistic of failed pastors if 
God doesn't do something with my heart. And so God gave me a list of rhythms that he, I believe he gave me to put into my life. Sabbathing once a week. Time with him daily. Fasting once a week for at least 24 hours. Every three months taking 24 hours just to go be in his presence alone with no one, no phone, nothing, just him and me and my Bible. And he gave me this list of things and many of them I have done. And I had to sit down this week with the elders. Wednesday night we had our prayer meeting and we meet every Wednesday and I had to confess to him. I said, guys, I'm going to be preaching on this. And I cannot stand before our people and say, go do this and not be honest and say, I have not done this. And so I confessed to them there were several things that I believe the Lord told me to do, develop rhythms in my life that would cultivate a heart that would love Jesus more increasingly as I grew older. And I've been unfaithful in those things. And I'm not sharing those things with you to say, oh, poor pastor, thank you for being honest. I don't. I'm sharing that with you to say, I'm in the struggle with you. I need rhythms in my life if I'm going to make it to the finish line loving Jesus with all of my heart, with all of my soul, and all of my mind. If I'm going to love the bride for the long haul, I have got to develop habits and rhythms. And so if you're here today and you're struggling as a disciple of Jesus, saying, man, the irreducible minimum I stink at. Well, great, you're in great company. So here's my, here's my encouragement. Let's just run after this thing together. What would it look like if we as a church rested in the gospel more deeply and we created rhythms in our lives that cultivated a deeper love for God and a deeper love for people? I believe it would change this church, it would change our life, it would change this community. Father, I love you. And I pray now in the name of Jesus that you would cause us to be men and women who love you in this way that we would truly have a passion for you and a passion for others, that we would love you completely, that we would love others genuinely. And God, may we, in our final days, whether that's soon or later on in life, may we say we loved you in the latter days better than the former. God, I pray that we would live the irreducible minimum, that we would love you and love others. It's in Christ's name. Amen. I hope that you have enjoyed this message. If you have any questions about anything that you have heard today or would like to know more about what it means to be a follower of Jesus, feel free to call our church offices at 903-759-5552 or send us an email at info at nbbctx.org. As for staying up to date with what's going on at New Beginnings, follow us on our social media accounts. Have a great rest of your day.